Please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, <clears throat> that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not, may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew the doc document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before, God, before his God, as he had been doing previously. Let's pray before we study God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have, the privilege that we have to come and to worship. Thank you, Father, the songs that have been sung uh, focus on you as did the special music. Thank you for the chance to give. Thank you, Father, for now the opportunity to study your word. I pray, God, that you will be glorified and that we will be challenged in our walk with you through our study this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill Rigney was a career baseball man. He was both a, a well-respected player and manager. He died some years ago, and at his memorial, Bill's son said, the cause of death was complications arising from 83 years of good living. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Someone has said that many start well, but few finish well, and unfortunately, all too often that's the case. The measure of your effectiveness is not how you start, it's how you finish. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Daniel, one of the best-known love stories in the entire Bible, and it contains one of the greatest testimonies of a man who finished well. When you trace the biography of Daniel, you start in chapter 1. He's a teenager. 
He has been taken from his home in Israel to a strange land with strange customs. Then we see him in middle life, and this morning as we study chapter 6, he's an octogenarian. I love saying that word, an octogenarian. It means he's in his 80s. He's pushing 90. But he is consistent still in his walk with God. Not only that, he, when he came to Babylon, he rose to a, a, a place of administrative importance under King Nebuchadnezzar. And then, as we'll see this morning, when the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians and Cyrus, he again rose to the top. As they say, cream rises to the top. So did Daniel. And, and you know what happens. The guys got jealous. They didn't like Daniel. didn't like that old codger in charge of them. So they set about to plot his demise. And so we might say, Daniel, <laughs> come on. You're in your 80s. Lighten up, you know when everyone else was reaching for the rocking chair, when everyone else was going fishing and playing golf, not Daniel. He was still tracking at 80-plus years of age. Just as we saw last week with the three Hebrew children, here's a man who was guided by internal principles rather than being pressured by external circumstances. So let's pick up the account in verse 1. We see first the political plan of Darius. Uh, we find Daniel serving another leader, as I mentioned. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire has overthrown the Babylonian Empire, and a man by the name of Cyrus has come to uh, be king. He's also called Darius, and there's been some confusion. Is, is this the same guy, or is it a different guy? I would submit to you that they are one and the same. Cyrus is his given name. Darius is more like a title a king or a pharaoh or Caesar. Now, Cyrus, or Darius as he's called in Daniel chapter 6, had a different view of, of how to, um, to handle kingdoms that were conquered. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took captives into the land to be slaves and servants. But the Medo-Persian Empire was four times larger than the Babylonian Empire. It, it included much of modern Turkey and parts of India, North Africa, and Egypt, and Babylonia. And it was Darius's idea that a, a, a people could best flourish by going back into their own land, uh, among their own people, in their own place, and, and just be overseen in that situation. So the Bible records that when Darius came to power, he sent the Jews back to Israel to rebuild their cities, to rebuild the temple. And, and a great number of Jews went back. But Daniel's in his 80s. He, he didn't go back. He stayed, and he rises to power, to a place of prominence again. The opening verses explain Darius's governing process. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. That word satrap comes from an old Persian word that means protector of the kingdom or provincial governor. Under this new kingdom... Uh, Darius uh, appointed Daniel to be one of three who would be a, a commissioner over these satraps. The whole point of this is so the king wouldn't suffer loss. <laughs> there would be no graft or greed or corruption, no rebellion. Now we find why Daniel was promoted in verse 3. We get a personal glimpse of this young man, or this old man actually now. now he, he began distinguishing himself. You may have in your Bible... 
the word preferred, but it, it, it's a word that means to distinguish himself. And he, he distinguished himself because he had what's known as an extraordinary spirit. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll find this, those two words repeated six times. He had an extraordinary spirit. Certainly, Daniel was a person of great abilities, of great intellect. He was a, an interpreter of dreams and visions we saw in chapter 2. But I believe this extra, extraordinary spirit references probably his attitude as much as anything else. He knew how to deal with people. He was tactful. He was respectful. I believe that, Dan, that Darius recognized that. You see, Daniel understood that in this difficult situation, that God was sovereign, sovereign of, over all appointments. And because Daniel was secure in God, he was secure in himself. And, and when he got around people, they noticed it. He's a winner. <laughs> and so he was promoted. But everybody didn't appreciate that. Everybody didn't like that. Most of them didn't. So uh, they were disgusted with this old codger, this exile, being uh, in a place of prominence, so they set out a plot against him, and that begins in verse 4. The text doesn't tell us why they hated him so much. Perhaps it was his integrity. It was difficult for them to get away with, with political corruption or graft. Perhaps it was his ability, his ability to function in this difficult situation. Or may it, maybe it was just a case of anti-Semitism. They were not happy that this Jew, this exile, was in this place of authority. It may have been a combination of all three. We're not told. But a conspiracy is born. An effort to discredit Daniel is hatched. And they sought to have a law passed in which Daniel would be caught, convicted, condemned, and executed. They investigated his life, the text tells us. They looked at his political life, his work habits, and his personal life. They probably hired a private investigator. They put cameras in his phone, in his home. They, they bugged his house. They checked his Facebook page and his Twitter account. They looked at his life inside and out. But they all agreed this is a man of integrity. They couldn't find anything to point a finger of accusation. There were no skeletons in Daniel's closet. He was faithful in his duties and faultless in his character. They realized that the only way they were going to be able to trap him was in his spiritual life as it relates to the law of God. Now, before we go on, let's just stop for a moment and think about this. What if? What if someone decided to check you out the way they did Daniel? Suppose someone hired a private investigator to look into every aspect of your life, past, present, public, private, what would they discover? The reality is people are watching you. They know whether you work hard at your job or not. They know what kind of character you have. And if they look at you long enough, they'll know if you're a person of faith or not. 
In Daniel's case, his enemies had to admit he had no glaring weakness. His only flaw was that he was a follower of God, and he wouldn't bend in that regard. So a plot is hatched. I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice in verse 6, that phrase, by agreement. It's an interesting phrase. It, it comes from an Aramaic term, which literally means hastily or tumultuously. In a commotion, they're stirring around. <laughs> they're coming against Daniel. And those two words are repeated again in verse 11 and verse 15. And the author does that for emphasis. They come by agreement to get rid of Daniel. Second, they've lied, haven't they? They said all of the governors agreed. Well, all of them didn't agree. Daniel didn't agree. He wasn't a part of this. And, and will you notice at the end of verse 7 that they say, O king, for 30 days we need to have you pass this law that no one will make a petition to any god but to you, O king. It reminds me, for you folks who are older in the, um, in the church family, you'll remember this show on TV called Queen for a Day. It's not on anymore. This was king for a month. You know, it was to stroke his ego, make him feel good about himself. We're going to have everybody just pray to you. You will be the primary God. And he bought it. He fell for it. And the text tells us that he signed a decree. Now, it's interesting that extra-biblical literature tells us that there was this concept in Persia, under Persian law, that once a decree was written, it couldn't be altered or violated. It was built into their system to, to prevent uh, superficial laws, whimsical things being passed. It would be pretty important if it was passed because it couldn't be changed. We, we see it here, and we see it also in the book of Esther. If it was a bad situation, it could be balanced, but it could not be rejected. Darius is vulnerable. His ego is being stroked, and he signs this decree. And then we see what happens, beginning in verse 10. Someone has said that a lot of crimes are not sins, and a lot of sins are not crimes. This is the case here. Daniel is a man who is convicted of a crime which is not a sin. He committed this crime because he didn't want to sin against his God, which was not a crime. Daniel heard of this decree. He went to his home to a place that he had designated as a place of prayer, and he did, the text tells us, what he'd always done. And I take it that always has been from the time he got to Babylon, now under the rule of the Medes and the Persians, a time of prayer. Many scholars trace this um, facing Jerusalem and praying to the time of Solomon. And normally Jews prayed standing up with hands uplifted, but in times of urgency, they would kneel. That was certainly the case for Daniel. 
And praying three times a day was a practice of the Jews that dates back, many believe, to David's time. It's mentioned in Psalm 55. He's facing and he's praying to Jerusalem. He's done that for years. A city that is in ruins and rubble. But he understands the promise of God that one day Jerusalem will be restored and a king will rule. And so he prays to God. And will you notice in this situation, he prays with a thankful heart. An important aspect of prayer for us to remember that regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, part of our prayer ought to be marked by a thankful heart. So as an act of faith and dependency, this man of enduring faith faces Jerusalem and prays. And just as, as I mentioned, just as he has always done. This man's heart is marked by a consistent walk with God in a hostile environment. Now, Daniel knows what's going on. He knows the consequences. He could have said, it's only 30 days. I can go to another place and pray. I, I, I don't have to do this. But for Daniel to do that would be to compromise. And that's not in his nature. It's an issue of loyalty. And he's been serving God for years and years and years. And this man has developed a lion's heart. He's not going to back away. He's a man who is guided by internal principles, not by external circumstances. And so these guys come by agreement to the king. Look at verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. <laughs> and they know this. They, they know, oh, it's, anyway. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? Then the king replied, the statement is true according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they said, gotcha. Gotcha. Daniel, who was one of the exiles, notice they don't even refer to him as, as, as the leader that he is. He's just one of those thinking exiles. He's one of those Jews. One of the exiles. Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition, petition three times a day. Then we see the king's response in verses 14 and 15. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until set sunset, he kept ex ex exerting himself to rescue him. I want us to realize that as I track this account, Daniel and Darius have been kind of together in this situation for about a year. And, and in this short period of time, they have developed what seems to be a significant relationship to the degree that Darius is very concerned about what he has done and what lies ahead for Daniel 
And then he says, um, And the king gave orders that Daniel be brought and cast into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, Your God, get this, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. How did he know that? How did he reach that conclusion? What would prompt him to say that? A A little bit of help, for me at least, is that word constantly. It's not a word that describes doing something continually over and over and over again. It's a word that describes doing something with someone on a regular basis over and over again. It's almost a relationship term. Someone has gone so far as to say it means to move in and settle down. And what Darius had seen in the life of Daniel is someone who had moved in on a regular basis and settled down with his God. Darius was convinced that Daniel's God would deliver him. Daniel, in the short time that I've known you, you've demonstrated the way you live your life, that you have a relationship with your God, that every day you move in and settle down in your relationship with him. And serve him regardless of the uh, adversity, regardless of the circumstances. Every day, Daniel is guided by internal principles, not swayed by external circumstances. Think about this. Here, in, in this book, we have the account of a young boy, a teenager, who's taken to captivity away from his family, away from his friends, away from his homeland to Babylon. A strange place with a strange religion, a strange culture. Separated from all that he knows. It appears that God has turned his back on Israel. What would this young man think? But then we see him facing adversity in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 6. And each time he comes out on top. Because every day he moved in and settled down with God and walked with him. I am convinced the major key to finishing well is to make a resolve if you've not already done so. I am committing my life to the Lord over the long haul. Every day, I'm going to move in and settle down in my relationship with Him. That's the key to faith that endures over the long haul, over difficult circumstances. Verse 17, we're told a little bit about this lion's den. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet ring of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. 
archaeologists tell us that this was the, one of the common ways to, uh, to perform capital punishment. In the Medo-Persian Empire, a big pit was dug in the ground and it would be sealed once somebody was thrown in there. It might have had a, some way that they could see or get put, uh, people or animals in and out uh, below or on the side. But Daniel's thrown in. The text tells us that the king went home, verse 18, spent the night fasting, no entertainment, couldn't sleep, didn't eat, no TV, no PlayStation, no Xbox, no computer, no iPhone, no iPad. <laughs> and he doesn't sleep. Just think of the relationship that, that let me look at it from a different Think of the impression that Daniel has made on this pagan king. So the king gets up early, verse 19 tells us, break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, uh, to, the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve? There it is again been able to deliver you from the lion's den. And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. And he does a little sermonizing here. I like it, you know. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king. I have committed no wrong. Just like with... Uh, the three guys in the fiery furnace, the critics, get all over this. Come on. This is just myth. And they say, you know, the lions weren't hungry. Or he's an old guy. He's grizzly meat. They didn't want to eat him. According to verse 24, they were pretty hungry. Which is kind of the good and the bad and the ugly here. The good is Daniel made it through the night. The bad and the ugly are what happened. Notice in verse um, 24, the king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. They cast them and their children, their wives, and the lions dead. They had not reached the bottom of the den and the lions overpowered them. And, and we see this is horrible. <laughs> but let's think about it. This is a pagan environment and uh, there was a, a line in the law of the Medes and the Persians that said on account of the guilt of one, all of his kindred must perish. It's a family affair if you messed up. And everybody died. And then look at verse 25 and 20 through 28. And Darius the king wrote to all the peoples and nations and men of every language who were living in all of the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and, the enduring, and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will uh, not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, and I take it, it could read even the reign of Cyrus because they are essentially one and the same person. Do, do you see what he's saying about the God of Daniel? 
Someone came up to me after the service last week, and we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's glowing words for Daniel's God, and asked, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? And you have these glowing words in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and now chapter 6 of these pagan kings. And I have no idea whether we'll see these guys in heaven, but my thinking is realizing that they're polytheists. They have a multiplicity of gods. And they have a pecking order of their gods that probably Nebuchadnezzar and now Darius have just added another god to their litany of gods. They recognize he's a super god, but they got a bunch of them. Daniel gives glory to God. And Darius responds by applauding Daniel's God and promoting him. One man who would, most people would assume is over the hill. He's 80. He's still tracking for God. Let me leave you with some thoughts as we finish up this morning. Things that I think emerge from the text and from Daniel's example. The first is this. Your private worship is the key to your public impact. Your private worship is your key to your public impact. Daniel is a finisher from the time he's a teenager all the way through to the end of his life. He's a person of character, a, a man of convictions, and a man of faith. No matter what people do or no matter what people say, he doesn't compromise. You know how he's able to pull that off? because of time spent in private worship. Your public impact always reflects your private worship. Daniel moved in and settled down with his God. He demonstrated every day he was guided by internal principles rather than being pushed around by circumstances. And it all begins with private Prayer and steady. Someone has said, prayer isn't something I do. Prayer is something I am. <laughs> I like that line. Your private worship is one of the biggest factors in your impact for Jesus Christ and whether or not you'll be a finisher. I urge you, make a daily habit spending time with him of moving in and settling down with your God. And, and I'm, I'm well aware of the world in which we live and all of the things that you've got going on in your lives, family and work, and time is of the essence. Time is difficult to come by, but I urge you, figure out how you can spend some time on a regular basis moving in and settling down with your God. Your strength lies in your intimacy with God. There's a second thing that Daniel 
illustrates for us, and that is simply this. You never retire from God's call on your life. You never retire from God's call on your life, from following Jesus and serving his people. Daniel is our example. Somewhere between 80 and 90, this guy's still in the fight. He's still dynamic. He's a guy making impact, an impact for God while others might be sliding into home. Some folks, as they get older, unfortunately get the idea, I've done my part. I've done the ministry thing. I deserve a break. I'm going to retire from ministry. I don't find that concept in the Bible. You know where it comes from, don't you? From our culture. We work hard, we make money, we retire, and then we do important things like eat a lot, play golf, go fishing, travel. Nothing wrong with those things. Don't misunderstand. But oftentimes they affect our ministry to others. And some folks get the idea that their best years are over and they have nothing to contribute. And I would submit to you that's a lie from the pit of hell. Your best years are just ahead of you. A great deal you can do for the Lord. Daniel demonstrate the power and honor of serving God productively in the old age. If we had time this morning, we'd illustrate people who have done great things in their 80s and 90s. Now, for just a minute, I don't do this often, but anyway, for just a minute, I want to talk to a specific group of people. The rest of you can listen in because one day you're going to get there, but right now I want to talk to people who are in their 60s, 65, 70, okay? Maybe you're anticipating retirement or you're going to retire. You have so much to give to your family, your biological family, to your kids and to your grandkids and to this church family. So much to give. You, you developed a stability of character, an enduring faith. You, you could be a rock-solid example to husbands and wives and young people who are looking for examples to follow. Older folks with a passion for Jesus Christ who are still tracking for God are great examples for younger folks. I got that email about the party for Yvonne this week, and Jason's mentioned. I thought it's ironic we got it this Sunday. You talk about two people who are tracking for God, and there are many others. Dick and Yvonne are examples, and many others that I could name. Examples of people who have a passion for Jesus Christ and are not ready to slide into home, still going to track for God. All, their ability to do some things may change. We get older, the old bod gets, you know, but they're still doing what they can. You have time to serve, you guys. There are things that can be done, and there are people who are doing it. You have wisdom to impart. doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. There are just certain lessons that are learned by doing, and you who are advanced in years, I shouldn't probably go there. You who are mature, I've done a lot. You have a lot of wisdom to impart. Be available to be mentors to younger people. 
That's how seniors ought to think biblically. Your private worship impacts your pub, uh, makes an impact on your public um, uh, area of ministry. Seniors, you never retire from the call of God. There's one other thing that stands out in this text as it did last week. Your faith must, no matter the personal cost, is a vehicle for God's glory. Read those last verses of Daniel 6. And this pagan king looks at Daniel's God and with those words exalts that God in front of all those who are listening. We saw this principle last week. The three lives of the guys who faced the fiery furnace. When Daniel is delivered, God is glorified. He understood the cost of courage, and he would not compromise, and God was glorified. Every time a believer in Jesus Christ lives out internal principles rather than compromising to external pressures, God gets the glory. I said last week, God wants people of faith and courage who in a winsome, non-judgmental way say, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to venture down that road. Even if it costs me, I'm not going to do it. Every time a believer lives out that internal principle, that walk with God, God gets the glory. And I believe that God's glory should be our sole and constant desire. In life and death, glorify God. In joy and sorrow, glorify God. In good days and dark days, glorify God. Sickness and in health, glorify God. In your career and in your home, glorify God. In your marriage and in your children, glorify God. In prosperity and in your poverty, glorify God. In days of peace and days of turmoil, glorify God. In the classroom and in the boardroom, glorify God. In moments of victory and darkest defeat, glorify God. In prayers answered and prayers unanswered, glorify God. In yesterday's tears and today's rejoicing and tomorrow's adventures, glorify God. The story of Daniel in the lion's den is one of the best-known stories in all of the scriptures. But it contains a profound message of a man who endured in faith and tracked with God through a lifetime. I, I pray that he is an example for each of us as we think about what it means to live a life of faith day after day in a changing world and a shifting culture. Father, thank you for the account of Daniel, for the message that it contains. I pray that you will challenge us to walk with you, to be a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has internalized your word and by your spirit has committed to live our lives based on internal principles biblical principles, rather than be tossed to and fro by external 
circumstances, external opinions. Thank you, Father, for your word and thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship that we have with you because of his work on Calvary. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.